Since he was sworn into office roughly a year ago, Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson has kept busy crisscrossing the state. He's also played a major role in big controversies over low-income housing and the quality of veterans' homes. The Bolivar native joins me in Jefferson City on another edition of Politically Speaking, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor, and I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast, the only show about Missouri politics that takes the conversation directly to the heart of Missouri's capital. I am your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a political reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. I'm flying solo today. I'm in the office of our special guest today. Good, good to be here, with the, have you here at the Lieutenant Governor's office. Jason. It's a true honor to be uh, in the Lieutenant Governor's office. I, I know that people crack jokes about the Lieutenant Governor's office, but I think this is a secret that I haven't revealed to a lot of people. When I was in uh, Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity, I was the lieutenant master ah. of my fraternity. So actually, I have a lot of affinity for the lieutenant governor's office because I actually did a lot of the things that you do, um, including run a meeting once and bang a gamble. Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, we we, we got some. Uh, I got some high expectations for this lieutenant governor's office. I think by the time we get done, people are going to be much more aware of the lieutenant governor's office and what we do and. Uh, and how much is how important it is to us to make Missouri a better place? Well, tell me kind of about your first year in office because um, you not only were involved in some somewhat controversial issues that we'll talk about later, but you also initiated several programs aimed at you know increasing Missouri's business economy and tourism. Just kind of sum up your experiences as succinctly as you can. Well, you know, the first years went by uh, very quickly for us here. We, we took on several different things under the umbrella of the lieutenant governors, all the way from a new JAG program to help students across the state of Missouri that are at-risk children. We've implemented the new Buy Missouri program, where, which we're really proud of that because we're really trying to promote Missouri businesses and Missouri workers and to make sure the public knows that, hey, when you go to buy a product, take a look and see if Missouri makes that product. How does it work? Because I saw that you were promoting it throughout the state, but I want to know like what you're doing to compel people to buy products from Missouri. Well, we're, we're going to continue to really market uh, those businesses in the state of Missouri and let the public know uh, what these businesses do and where they're located and what those products are. And really, it's, it's more of an education than it is anything, just trying to make the consumer aware when they go into a grocery store, they go into a hardware store, or they go into a feed store, that they have on their mind, is there a Missouri product in here? And if it is, you know, give it a first look or at least give it an opportunity to buy to help those fellow Missourians. And I think it'll have a real effect on the state of Missouri when we get it up and going and get all the things uh, running full steam. You know, one of the major aspects of your job, besides aforementioned banging the gavel to open up the Senate is you're on a slew of boards and commissions. Right. We had um, Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder on our show, I think near the end of December 2016. He said his favorite board and commission to be on was the Missouri Development Finance Board. 
His least favorite was the Missouri Housing Development Commission, which we'll talk about later. Right. So far, like, what, what has been kind of your experience being on these boards? Which ones do you think you've really been able to find a niche in and, and tell kind of our listeners the lieutenant governor's role? Yeah, that? you know what, what? I think there's a lot of boards out there that are significant boards that, that is uh, very challenging to be on. They're very informative, and, and frankly, they're good for the state of Missouri. We, when you look at the finance board, you're talking about new businesses coming to Missouri that you're helping with. And, and that's that's a good committee to be on. Uh, even on the housing board that we set on, uh, I enjoy that because I think it's important to know how we're using tax dollars and where are we really making those uh, differences in rural Missouri or the urban cities. I think there's a lot of things you learn, but uh, of all of them, and tourism uh, is another one that I enjoy being on. But I, I think one of the things that I really have set my mind to it, the same as just presiding over the Senate last year, I want to be involved. I just don't want to be a chair at the table, you know, as a token member of that. You know, if I'm going to be there and that's part of my job, then I want to be able to go out there and work in those areas and do the best I can to promote them. And I was talking a little bit about this before I pressed record. Um, sometimes the, the party of the people presiding over the Senate really does matter. At the end of the last session, when you were presiding over that very poorly executed previous question, it's not your fault. It's I'm just I'm just making that observation, and hopefully Senators uh, uh, Richard and Kehoe don't smart too much from that. I mean, if there had been a Democratic lieutenant governor, it's very likely that minimum wage bill um, would not have passed. Right. Whereas you were on the chair, I know it was probably a very difficult thicket of procedural morass that you had to go through, but in the end, when you called on Senator Kehoe, that bill was basically passed, which basically uh, made it. Um, basically made it so cities can't raise their own minimum wages. So right. that, that's an instance where the lieutenant governor actually made a difference in law and policy. Right. I, I think, you know, one of the things you have to do as lieutenant governor, although you, you, the politics play a part because you're, you're affiliation with a party, one or the other. But really for me, as I, I run the dais, I always try to make sure, maintain, that every senator in there is treated equal, that I run the floor the best I can with the rules of the Senate. And I try to keep the politics out of it. You know, when it gets to procedural motion, that all depends on who's doing those motions and what those vote counts are. But I think as the presiding of the Senate, the president of the Senate, my job is to make sure that every one of those senators in that room have the ability to have their voices heard. And that was one of the things I was trying to do at the last, although it was a, a very chaotic situation that we were in with with probably more PQs, and most people probably don't understand the PQ portion it, of it. It's, it's when you basically kill a filibuster, yeah, yeah. but us, us Missouri political obsessives just call it yeah, the PQs. Yeah. But before we get into politics, I do want to get into policy, because one of the things that you are heavily involved in um, actually does correspond to your job. One of the things the lieutenant governor is responsible for is they're an advocate for veterans. Yes. I think that they are, I don't know if you're on a particular for dealing with veterans, but I think actually your designation is you're supposed to yeah. statutorily advocate th for veterans. That, that's correct, and, and you know, that's an issue for me that's a very serious issue. Being a veteran myself and spending six years, uh, two tours of duty overseas, it's important to me that I do my part to represent the veterans of this state, uh, 465,000 of those people that are out there. And recently we had the issue of the St. Louis Veterans Home that this is a real problem. And uh, we actually investigated that through the lieutenant governor's office, which is something we normally don't do either. But again, I think it's a new day for the lieutenant governor's office. We're going to expand our duties. Uh, and from my previous background, I was well capable to know how to do an investigation from my law enforcement background. 
But there were some real problems up there, and the thing that really disappointed me the most is to the bureaucracy side of it. People were aware of this, the situation was out there, but people really wasn't doing anything about it. It was like trying to explain or to make excuses why bad things were happening to people in those homes, and that's just not acceptable. So we launched an eight-month investigation into it, Jason, and we uh, did countless interviews, and uh, we did it the right way. What did you find? I mean, obviously this has been reported a lot in the press, but I want listeners that don't understand, what, what, did, what did this investigation find? You know, most of the problem comes from the administrative sector on it. I want to, I, and there's something I really want to say before I get into details of it. There is a lot of good, good employees there trying to do a good job. So I, d I don't want them to be the ones that are a problem here because the problem was administratively, all the way from Jeff City to the Veterans Administration, all the way to the home itself. But you had things with uh, antipsychotic medication being administered at a higher level than other homes which basically means you were trying to just take care of patients to keep them calm so you didn't have to deal with the real problem. There was things just about taking care of them uh, in the home, uh, meds on the right time, cleanliness of the home that was in there, and really uh, people just taking care of them, dealing with family members, keeping them informed of things that were occurring. And there was just a, it was a bad situation that needed to be corrected, and thank goodness that has been corrected. And this is how it got corrected. Um, Eventually, Governor Eric Greitens um, did, I guess, his own investigation and found very similar findings. He appointed new members to the Missouri Veterans Commission pretty recently, and all, all of them were on expired terms, from what I recall. Right. And Larry Kay, the executive director of the Veterans Commission, was ousted, and the administrator of the St. Louis Veterans Home was ousted. I have to ask, though, Larry Kay was involved in some other controversies during his tenure. I believe that there was a million dollar plus settlement based off i don't know if it was sexual harassment but it was some workplace harassment i'm honestly surprised he wasn't fired sooner right. after that so this is a two-part question one why do you think he was able to stay on so long as executive director and two did you have any conversations with the governor about why he didn't appoint new members to this commission sooner so that they could take action quicker right. than they did. Well, first of all, I, I want to make sure that my investigation was on that home yes. and, the, and the administration to that, which led back to the VA here in Jefferson City. That was my investigation of why things happened for, why it wasn't replaced, I don't know. All I do know is there were some problems and it wasn't addressed from the top level down to the administration level there. I did not talk to the governor about why he uh, hadn't done something earlier or not. I know when it comes to the independent investigation it was a thing that we asked for through this office that we felt like there was a real need for that and we wanted to be disconnected from the Veterans Administration when this happened. So we were in contact with those people during this investigation during that time, uh, which really substantiated everything that we had said they basically found. Were you in any communication with the two U.S. Senators, to Claire McCaskill and Roy Blunt, or not really? I was not. Okay, because you know, they, I, they asked also for an independent yeah, investigation. Yeah. There was that whole letter flap, but it seemed like yeah. they were very concerned about this as well in a bipartisan way. Yeah, so. I, I think, that, and I'm glad they did. I'm glad they come forward and address that. I think it's important to know for, for Jason, for you or the listening audience out there, we were conducting this on our own all the time, and we really wasn't releasing the information we was doing. And we did dozens and dozens upon dozens of interviews with people up there, uh, all the way from the workers to family members to patients uh, to janitors. I mean, you name it. We were talking to people up there, and we were really reluctant to, to let anybody have that information until I really got a final 
case put together where I could make sure that I was factual and when I called for somebody's resignation or I wanted to say, here's the real problems, this is what needs to happen. And I wanted to make sure I had that before I come out publicly and said anything. Are you optimistic things are going to get better, not only for the St. Louis Veterans Home, but for the Veterans Commission in general? You know, we're going to take a much more active role in the lieutenant governors to make sure that does happen. So, and I say that by means we're going to be making site visits to the veterans homes around the state. We're going to be talking to employees. We're going to be talking about family members. And we're going to do our part to make sure that those veterans' voices are heard and that we do everything within our powers that we can. And this home in St. Louis, just because we finished our investigation, we're not done. And we're going to keep an eye on that to make sure that it's just not a matter of the bureaucracy waiting five months and they take over again. That's not going to happen. I do want to move on to another, uh, I, and when I say controversy, it's not because you did anything controversial. It's just a controversial policy, and that's low-income housing tax credits. Right. For our listeners who haven't heard yet, the Missouri Development Finance, or excuse me, the Missouri Housing Development Commission voted pretty recently to not issue state low-income housing tax credits for 2018. This is a very big deal for a lot of not only developers, but also people seeking out low-income housing, either low-income people or seniors. Now, this has been an issue that has percolated around the legislature probably for close to a decade. Right. Um, I have followed this issue extensively, as I was telling you before the show. I think right. that there are passionate arguments on both sides. I know that the proponents of low-income housing tax credits believe that it's an efficient way of cultivating low-income, high-quality, or cultivating high-quality housing for low-income and elderly people, especially in places like rural Missouri. Detractors have said it's an inefficient um, tax credit that wastes a lot of money. So you were one of the two people that voted against stopping the state low-income housing tax credits. I'd like you to kind of explain why you did that. Yeah, for for one, to just do, to eliminate it for the entire year, I thought was wrong. Uh, You know, if you wanted to streamline it or if you wanted to uh, do other things to the program. There's many things you could have did without doing away with it. But one thing I did, I didn't like the way the process was handled in that particular uh, area because I didn't think that was the way to do it. I think it needs to go to the legislative. I think the legislators need to come in. And I totally agree that they need to be looked at. They need to be tweaked. They need to be able to, we need to redesign the whole programs. Uh, but to do away with it, um, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. And it really affects people that most of us have the privilege and have the ability to live in nice homes or nice communities or get to do things. Uh, but you're really talking about some veterans out there, some homeless veterans, some disabled people, to some real seniors that this might be the best housing they ever get to live in. Uh, so I think there is that reality to it. So when you delay that, that means somebody out there, outside of our lieutenant governor's office or the state capitol or our homes, you know, do need a little help. And for rural Missouri, I thought it was a big deal. And, and I uh, wanted you to explain why, because I've heard people say rural Missouri is especially hurt by this. I've only gone to urban low-income sure. housing developments, yeah. but I'd like you to explain that, because yeah. I've heard that contention, and, and yeah. I'm not really sure what it means, but I'd like to give that opportunity. I, I, I think one of the things you got to look at, if you go out here to a community, uh, one of there's 93rd class counties in the state of Missouri. And if you go to some of these counties that are low income, that the average income in those counties maybe are less than 30000 you know, nobody's going to come from St. Louis or Kansas City or the big cities to build these homes. And there's people in those areas that they just can't afford to do that. So if you don't have some sort of tax incentive to help with that, nobody's coming to a town of 400 people to provide housing. 
Now, you can take the tough man side of that and say, okay, we're, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to let them people go. The reality of it is those people in those small towns of 400 people are still there. So what are they going to do? They're going to go somewhere at the end of the day. So when we have those programs available, uh, I just think uh, to just act like we're just going to do away with them is not a good plan. And I've said that openly. And, and you know, I, and I know the question become is that I'm disagreeing with the governor, but I didn't get elected to, to agree with the governor on everything he does, and I'm already not going to. I don't want to get too much into the weeds on the low-income housing tax credits because it can kind of get boring, I admit. Yeah. But I think the reason why when low-income housing tax credits are sold, you don't get 100% of it is it's stretched out over a 10-year period. Right. So th it, it makes it less valuable yeah. to people that buy it. And I don't really know how there's any way you can, quote, tweak that. Yeah. And, and make it more efficient. I just think that it's the reality of the situation. And because of that, the state is not gonna get as much bang for its buck as it could. Now, I've also heard arguments that the reason why the private sector is involved is they assume all the risk, as opposed to, let's say, if there's a no interest loan done by the state, the state would basically be put all the risk. So I know that's kind of a jumbled observation, but my, my point is like, is there really any way to make it more efficient or is it just by design, the state may lose a little money on this for potentially a good thing, which is low-income housing? Well, I, I do, I think there is ways to do that, but I, I think what you're saying is very complicated and, and to try to articulate that in a short period of time, it's tough for us to do it here when me and you are just talking now. Yeah, sure. But I think one of the things is maybe you don't do as much you know, is one of the simpler ways and says, okay, hey, instead of 90 million, we're only going to do 60 million or whatever those numbers might be. And then I think there's things within the program the state can do to eliminate some of it, uh, just some of the rules and regulations of them to save money uh, through that. There's, there's different things you can do that really hasn't really ever been done. And I want to say in a omnibus type bill that really, really goes after what it is we're trying to do. But I, I think there is a possibility to do that. And I think the legislature will truly try to find a way to do that. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, because the reason why I said at the onset is this is an issue that's been going on for a long time, is there are a lot of interests that don't want it to change. And I'm not saying that as a negative, because if, if you're somebody involved in the low-income housing process and you hear that politicians want to kill it completely. Of course you're going to like talk to legislators. Right. Of course you're going to get involved in the campaign right. process. And frankly, and some detractors may not like me saying this, the amount of money that's donated to politicians from low-income housing developers is much less than attorneys, businessmen, labor unions. It, right. It's not even close. But my point is there are a lot of interests that don't want to change it. And they may be making the arguments that this is a necessary good, we want it to stay the same. Now, I see the governor doing this to get leverage to, to make changes. Do you think, given that backdrop, it can happen? Yeah, I, I think that it sure does advantage to get leverage. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I assume, and I have not had that conversation with the governor, but I assume that's sure what he's doing, mm -hmm. which, which is a good plan. But there's probably the way to do that is probably a different approach than, than, than um, then I, then I probably would disagree with some of the maneuvers that are made of how you appoint people and how to do things. But he's the governor. That, that's his job to do that. You know, it's just, uh, I want people, uh, like when I sit on a commission or somebody comes into that board meeting, I want them briefed on what it is they're doing. You know, and I think they should be a fair-minded, they should be educated in that process, uh, is what I thought. And I thought that's why we should, I really felt like we should have delayed that vote till after the first of the year. 
and let everybody get up to speed on that and give us some ideas of what's going to happen if we don't do this. And I think anytime you're asking for more information before you make a vote is a good thing. Yeah, I've been told by Senator Caleb Rowden that it's more likely he'll grow to be eight feet tall than former Senator Jason Crawl being a permanent member of that commission, it's, which is a funny quip, but it may actually be relevant because if he can't get confirmed, does that change how that process happens or does he just appoint somebody else? I don't know. I don't want to get into that minutia. I, I don't know either, Jason, on that. We'll see what happens. That, Do you think Caleb Rowden will grow to be eight feet tall, though? That would be funny. In I don't think there's much chance of that. I yeah. don't think there's much chance of that. You know? I do want to kind of talk a, a little bit about transportation because, yeah. right. um, you know, that's an issue that just came out yesterday. Uh, there's a there's a commission that said that there should be a gas tax increase and a diesel tax increase. It's a tough sell for a lot of not only legislators but voters. We had a we had a sales tax increase for transportation that failed pretty pretty dramatically. Sure. And while I think that there's no question that the need is there to improve roads, highways, bridges, question always comes back to how do you pay for this? So I want I I know you don't get a vote unless it's like 1717 or 18 or whatever. But what's your kind of your philosophy on this? Because I know that a you lot know, of your constituents want want right, some action right, on this issue. Right. I, I don't think there's any question. We have to do something for the infrastructure of the state of Missouri. If we have, if we expect to be um, competitive in economics around the United States and the globe, we've got to do something with our infrastructure in the state. And I'm talking about airports. I'm talking about our river ports. I'm talking about rail. I'm talking about our highway system, our bridges. And it's going to cost something to do that. I don't know any way to sugarcoat that for anybody to say. You know, we're going to do this by transferring money out of this agency or that agency. It's going to cost something. You know, my firm belief is the Constitution was set up to do this through a gas tax or through a use tax on that. I think that's where we should go, to some form of that. Maybe there's another form or two of something. But anyhow, but the bottom line is I think we as statewide elected officials have got to be willing to get out here on the stump and say, look, we need to do this for the betterment of the state of Missouri, and you're going to have to pay for it. I don't know any way to make that. Uh, because the gov former governor, Jane Nixon, opposed the sales tax increase, and a lot of people did, because it was a very high sales tax increase. Whereas the, the proposed gas tax, well, I don't want to say it's painless, 10 cents on gas is a lot different than 0.75 on, on a sales tax. Yeah, I, well, I, I'm not a big fan of the sales tax issue either. I, I think it needs to be at the pumps because those are the people using it. That's the people that's buying it. They're the ones out here using the roads and everything. And I really think that MoDOT, uh, has to do a, a better job at saying exactly how this money is going to be spent. And, and I think the old saying, well, we're going to spend $10 million in one of the counties, we're going to let them. Uh, no, nah, I think that county needs to tell the people of that county how we're going to spend that money so everybody knows how the money is going to be spent. I think that's the only way you're going to get that done. And oh. I think there needs to be a comprehensive plan put in place. Do you expect Missouri voters to vote on this? Uh, in 2018. Obviously, that's the legislature's call, yeah. but do you, do you think that there's consensus from talking with senators? I would hope so, but I really think that that's something the legislators ought to do. That's what they got sent up here to do, to represent the people back home, and I know that people don't want to make that vote because, quote, you're going to get tagged with voting for a tax increase, mm -hmm. but I think that's something the legislators ought to vote on. You know, if they want to send it back to people, that's fine, but I also think, I don't think you should be ducking it just because you don't want to make a vote. On taxes, you recently put out an op-ed uh, talking about the tax cut. Um, beyond just explaining what you said in that, how do you think the tax cut bill is going to affect Missouri? Because 
uh, because the standard deduction is linked to the state standard deduction, there's kind of an unknown about how much it's going to cost the state. Right. On the other hand, maybe people have more money, they spend more money. I, I'm just trying to figure out, though, like, how much money would you have to spend to get all the way back to the state? Because if people take their tax savings and just spend it, it doesn't all go to the state. It goes to, you know, local sales taxes. Right. It goes to you know, maybe if they pay their property tax bill, could go to the county. Sure. How, how does how does the state not lose money if they do nothing? Because yeah. it seems well, like I they're going to lose I don't, something. I don't, I don't think you lose money in the long run. I really don't. And regardless of the arguments on the other side of this, the thing that I think is so important, Jason, the system we're under now, to me, does not work. You know, when it takes the average person 240-some-odd pages to do his tax returns and you have to hire an accountant to do your taxes, an average family of four, that's not a good system. So my, my thoughts when I tell people is don't be afraid to go outside the box because I think this will have, and it maybe have challenges. We maybe have to do things in the state of Missouri to address some of those issues. But really, uh, anything's better almost than the system we're under now. It's so complicated. It's so big. The IRS has just got, to me, out of control. So any way we can reduce it, make it simpler for everyday Missourians is a good thing. And I think this is a step in the right direction. I'm going to do a lightning round because we talked about the gas tax as far as ballot initiatives. There might be three other ballot initiatives on the ballot, um, depending whether the legislature or um, the initiative petition process. Medical marijuana. Where do you where do you stand on that? I think you know what I think medical medical marijuana. I'll sound like a politician here. I think there's a worthwhile conversation to have on medical marijuana. I do. I, I think there is some merits to that. But here's the thing: I don't want to be confused with. If it's open the door to legalize marijuana, I'm not opposed to that. I don't think the state of Missouri needs to legalize marijuana because I don't think that's going to help us. Uh, if you want to have a conversation about medical marijuana and to see what sale what what safe uh, safe things we put in place for that, then I'm open to listening to that. Yeah. Uh, the second one that could be on the ballot is raising the minimum wage to 12 or $13 an hour. Uh, Republicans typically aren't crazy about raising the minimum wage that high. I know back in 2006, there really wasn't a huge effort to oppose the last minimum wage hike. What's kind of your, your take on, on yeah, raising the minimum wage? I don't think we need to be setting a minimum wage for the state of Missouri. And a perfect example of that, when we all started talking about minimum wage, people were paying seven, eight bucks an hour for people. If you go about anywhere in the state of Missouri, and I've traveled it over 200 stops in this year, last year, yeah. wages now for a convenience store, a, a fast food place is now are $10 an hour. Mm. So it's going up on their own. And you see that all over the state of Missouri, where the, where the supply and demand, and people are going back to work, and people are paying for good employees. At, at the risk of going down the, the, uh, a rabbit hole that I get kind of obsessed with, there is actually a proposal, multifaceted ethics proposal, but the main changes the redistricting process. I guess much more generally, because I don't know if you've looked at the proposal, do you think that the state's redistricting process needs to change at all for state legislative districts? You know, I really don't. I mean, it works. The process works. Is it difficult? Is it messy sometimes? Is it hard to get through? Yes. Uh, is there somebody going to be happy at the end of the day and somebody going to be sad? Yes. But it's always been that way. But I'll go back to the legislative process as a whole. That's why there's so, the, the three branches of government are so important but they have to work independent of one another to be successful. And yeah, that was a painful thing, a painful thing for me. For the congressional the one, they, they split Polk in half, I think, so. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just things like that that sometimes that you um, think what is the best for the state of Missouri, but I think that all that input is good for the state of Missouri. So I wanted to spend the last couple minutes talking about your relationship with the governor. Um, the last governor basically did not talk to the Republican Lieutenant Governor, Peter Kinder. 
as a running storyline throughout the, that eight years. Right. I, I'm just I'm going to ask flat out: How often do you guys talk? You know, I, I think we talk when it's necessary to talk. We're in some sort of communications with one another. Uh, people ask me this question a lot of times, though, Jason. A lot of reporters and people ask yeah. me, and they'll say, "Do you talk to the governor every day?" And my standard answer is, well, I don't even talk to my wife every day, so I'm sure not talking to him. Well, I'm just, we're, we're, we're going from a standard where Peter Kenner, Jane Nixon yeah. never talked yeah. at all to a yeah. point where is there at least some communication? There is. There, ba is. there has it, to be baby you know steps before we talk every day. <laughs> well, let me tell you this. The, the governor's been very open when I need to get a hold of him. I get a hold of him. We both have busy schedules. It's not like we run across each other sometimes. I keep thinking we're going to run across somebody on the on the trail out here someday. We're going to end up in the same town or something. Do you run time. marathons too? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. But, but I think the, the communication with the governor's office, uh, every time I've ever needed to talk to him, I felt like I've needed to talk to him. He's been open to that, and and same way with me. If he calls and says, "Hey, I need to see you down here," then I'm the first to walk out and go see him. You are the president of the Senate, and there are a number of senators in the Republican caucus who are upset with what the governor did with appointments. I think that some Republicans just don't like his style. They don't like the way he speaks. Other Republicans really like what he's doing. Even on the Board of Education situation, there's some people that have been pushing for quote-unquote education reform for a long time that think it was a necessary thing. Um, what are you kind of hearing from the senators? Because I know that they still talk to you and you still are kind of involved in that process. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, even though I've heard what they've, they've said on the floor, but is, well, there, you, is there widespread you, discontent? You, you, you hear a lot of things. Uh, for me, CMs believe in them, so when I see it, what happens out there, then I'll believe it yeah. uh, when, when things happen. So we're going to find out this year. It's, it's going to be... Uh, uh, interesting session, to say the least, to see what happens. But I hope at the end of the day, regardless of what everybody's beliefs are, what other they're thinking, their personal thinking is, I really hope that people at the end of the day focus on what's best for the state of Missouri, what they believe is best for the state of Missouri, even if it's maybe not always right. At least they're doing it because they believe that that's what they should be doing. I hope that prevails after over all the politics are out there. And that was going to be my last question, because I was thinking about this when we were on St. Lucie on the air the other day. Like, obviously, Political reporters like myself always like to focus on the conflict. And, you know, when Republicans are fighting with each other, it's a fun thing to, to report on when it's happening. But for everyday people, if the, the legislature ends up passing something that affects their lives, then I don't think they really care about the process. They care about the result. Exactly. So my, my question is, like, if there is a lot of bickering and fighting, but the legislature does accomplish a lot of things, does the bickering and fighting really matter that much? Yeah. And conversely, the bickering and fighting actually prevents things from happening, is that when it becomes a problem? Yeah, I think that's more of the problem when all of a sudden you have the controversies that stop good legislation from happening or good things from happening or, or part of that process. But it is a part of the process. It's nothing new that we're going through that they didn't do back in the days of the beginning of our forefathers. They had the same kind of problems. But I do think it, it's important just to, for all of us not to conduct ourselves like the federal government does. I think Missouri has a lot better chance of providing the leadership that we're missing in Washington, D.C. right now. And you, you just see that up there. We're stalemate on every issue, the budget, and you could go on and on about the federal government. But the state of Missouri, at the end of the day, do have certain responsibilities that they've met. Balancing the budget, we don't ever talk about that too much. But the reality of it is, thank goodness that's there. Thank goodness we have to do it every year. And people sometimes, I don't think, understand how important that is for the state of Missouri for us to do that. So I think there's a lot of things that happen every day in our system of society in Missouri that's a good thing. But unfortunately, sometimes we get sidetracked by 
the politics or by the disagreements or, or the infighting, whatever you want to name, Jason. You, know, you I, cover it, I, too. I, I, there's a lot of names for it. And Illinois, I don't think has – I don't know. If they think they might technically have a balance, balance budget requirement. I'm not sure, but obviously they – had issues with deficit spending. Right. Maybe one day Missouri will buy Illinois for fifty dollars, which is a which would be a dream come true for yeah. this uh, native. Be Illinoisian. careful about bargain prices. All I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I just want to thank you for your time on this Wednesday. Uh, the session began. I know your schedule is very busy. For all of our stories, stillpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How would people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the world? I think we have the lieutenant governor's office has got a Twitter account here. We've got a Facebook account. I have my personal ones. All you got to do is look for Mike Parson, lieutenant governor of the state of Missouri, and you're in. Yeah. Simplest way to do it. It's very simple. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.